Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be here with you again today. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, John. Last time we went off on a little tangent at the end of the show, but um, I actually thought it was really good. I encourage people to uh, go back and listen to the previous episodes in this series if you haven't already. Just to give a little recap of the previous show, Ben, what, what were we talking about? So Josh McDowell had started his argument talking about the um, the testimony of the church fathers um, and reconstructing the scripture, um, and we had talked about that on the previous episode. But we we got a little bit more into how that creates more problems uh, because of ambiguities in the church fathers themselves. We reiterated again um, that it only gets you back to the earliest text that we have access to, which is not the same thing as the early text. And then Josh McDowell uh, went back out into the street and um, talked to some people about their um, conceptions of whether the gospel was historical, and they said, you know, um, uh, people interpret it in different ways, that it's been changed by people over time. He also made the claim that the gospels that we have now are the same as the originals, um, based on the testimony from the Church Fathers and all the ancient sources he believes are the same as the ones that we have now. Um, and then he shifted to, um, the gospel authors themselves, basically claimed that, uh, the gospels were written by Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, that he believed that they were disciples of Jesus or, um, used the eyewitness testimony of Jesus, um, and that they were eyewitnesses to the events. And so John and I broke down some of the problems, um, that exist because of the synoptic problem. Um, we talked a little bit about the Q document and uh, talked about the fact that we don't even know who wrote these books. And then I think Josh McDowell made a claim that uh, communities would be able to filter out the things that weren't true um, through their experience um, and through their interaction with eyewitnesses, and that uh, they would be very careful in making sure they maintained the text uh, carefully to preserve the truth. And we just showed that that's not the case in um, early Christianity. There were uh, there was a huge proliferation of texts going around. Scholars all agree different communities had different beliefs. Everything that we know about early Christianity um, that we've discovered in the last hundred years shows that there were a multitude of divergent beliefs um, in the early church, and that even in the Gospels themselves there are different theological beliefs and perspectives that the uh, writers have. Um, as well as just the dubious claim that they were written by eyewitnesses. They were not. 
Um, and uh, we also just gave a commercial for historical scholarship when it comes to the Bible and not just nitpicking things out of context to prove your argument. Yeah, I think the rant we went on at the end was all about um, how Josh McDowell is uh, bad scholarship or it's not scholarship at all. And uh, if you're going to address these questions, you really should go to the experts and go to the people that have studied this and uh, not someone like Josh McDowell. And we made allusions to creation and evolution. And then we got into a, a little bit of a rant about the the public school system and the textbooks. But um, for those of you who don't know, we're going through Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But since the book is an 800-page um uh, endeavor to get through, we are using his YouTube video evidence, the new evidence that demands a verdict, and um, trying to where he makes what he claims is his best arguments, and um, we're going through them like piece by piece and trying to uh, dissect them a little bit. But um, if it's okay with you, Ben, I'd like to just continue on and and hear where he goes with this next. Yeah, let's move on. I'm sure we'll have a lot to say. Mark. A lot of people say, well, you can't consider Mark an eyewitness, even though he recorded eyewitness accounts. And they said, but Mark wasn't an eyewitness when he wrote the Gospel of Mark. He recorded what Peter said. And there's secular sources apart from the Bible that would confirm that Mark was the recorder of what Peter said. And see, that was done all the time in olden days, and even like now, is in the olden days, they would often have a writer, a scribe, a recorder, that would take down the person's uh, memory and what he shared, and then that would become his work. But recently a book came out on eyewitness to Jesus, and it was written by an attorney, and, and she clearly documented, according to the laws of legal evidence, that Mark would be considered an eyewitness account because he had recorded, he was simply the recorder of the eyewitness, which was Peter. And so the Okay. I just want to make one... Well, I have a couple comments. Many scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark shows a lack of knowledge of geographical, political, and religious matters in Judea at the time of Jesus. So it's strange if it's based on the testimony of Peter that Peter doesn't know those things. So that's the first complication. And a lot of scholars just assume that he didn't know... Um, that geographic and historically and like he's distanced from the narration of the events because of that. Um, so there's uh, clues that scholars find in the gospel of Mark that uh, clearly uh, disagree with the claims that uh, Josh McDowell is making. I think the other interesting thing is in Mark's gospel, Peter, if Peter is the one that's uh, recounting the testimony, like, so I've heard this argument heard said before um, that, the forensic test, the forensic study of the Gospel of Mark shows that Peter's test. It's based on Peter's testimony, eyewitness testimony, because it shows Peter somehow in a more positive light. Um, like it talks about the disciples, and then when you go to the later Gospels, it says Peter. Now, I don't think this proves anything except that different communities had different views of Peter, and Peter was a figure that was prominent in the early church. But it's interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, it's much closer. So there's a part in the Gospel of Mark where Peter says that Jesus is uh, the Messiah, or says he's the Christ. And there's a brief interlude, and then Jesus takes him aside and basically tells him, like, no, you can't say this out loud, and, um, and, and Peter disagrees with him, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
Well, in Matthew, when Matthew retells it, there's a whole editorial comment about how great Peter is in between those exchanges, because that exchange seems to reflect so poorly on Peter. So it just is strange. I just don't think that this argument makes any sense. And I think scholars would totally reject the characterization of the Gospel of Mark as being somehow more sympathetic to Peter, who's called Satan, um, without any editorial comment before, um, than, like, say, Matthew. So what he's talking about when he talks about um, the fact that we have have testimony in the early church that uh, the Gospel of Mark stems from the testimony of Peter, this comes from Papias, who I mentioned in the last episode, uh, and Papias is being quoted uh, by Eusebius here, because we don't have Papias's actual writings. We have what Eusebius quoted him. But um, he basically says the Gospel of Mark is based on um, Peter's preaching. And the problem, one of the big problems we have here is most scholars don't think that what Papias is referring to is the Gospel of Mark that we have today. Um, I think Ben mentioned last time that some people think he was actually talking about Matthew. Other people think he's talking about a lot like a gospel that's been lost to history, which I think I lean toward. Um, because if you find other quotes from Papias about um, some of the events in the, that happened in the New Testament that we know, they're completely different than what we find in the Gospel of Mark. So it seems to me that Papias is not really familiar with the Gospel of Mark, or at least he's not quoting it. Um, so there's all kinds of problems with that. And, and all this to say, like we said before, it's important to realize the Gospel of Mark did not have the name Mark on the Gospel until centuries uh, after it was written. So um, that's like important to say about all this stuff. And Josh McDowell, again, is bastardizing uh, the historian's work here by just saying this stuff as fact when it's highly dubious. Um, and then I was shocked when he started talking about um, a book that was just written, I thought, oh, okay, here he's going to talk about uh, Richard Bauckham and Jesus and the eyewitnesses. But no, he, he just brought up some attorney that said this evidence would be good enough to use in court. Now, uh, um, any evidence can be used in court if the judge allows it. There's been court cases where um, uh, mediums have been, u- have been testifying. There's been court cases where uh, they've concluded that uh, a house was haunted by ghosts. So what is allowed in a courtroom um, is no bearing, is nothing to do at all of the, at the way a historian tries to get to the bottom of evidence. And I'm shocked here that he uses this. He's basically saying, see, this evidence is good enough to be used in court. Uh, I'm sorry, but that that first of all, even if that was true, it really means absolutely nothing, which is why that's not the way a historian um, uses evidence. Yeah, the forensic apologist or whatever that guy's name is does the same thing. He's like, well, I've analyzed it, and I use the same techniques that I do to analyze if someone is lying in the uh, it, when I'm talking to them if they're an eyewitness. I'm like, well, first of all, if you're talking to someone and they're an eyewitness, like you already know they're an eyewitness. You're just analyzing their testimony. Or, you know, you have the assumption that they're an eyewitness and you're analyzing their testimony. Like, that's different than what we have in the Gospels, where it's something that's written. I I mean, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, The other thing that I think is interesting overall, and I forget if he talks about it at all during his his thing, is the the total absence of the Apostle Paul Mm. in any of this. Now, granted, he's talking about the Gospels, but... The earliest testimony that we have about the life of Jesus comes from the Apostle Paul, and it's incredibly sparse. 
There's nothing there. It, Jesus was born of a woman. Jesus, you know, was crucified. Jesus rose again. I mean, it, like, essentially, that's the gospel, according to Paul. You know, I mean, so, like, to pretend that, like, the earliest testimony that we have is Mark, I mean, I think, like, it's fair to start with, like, someone who we do know wrote something, Paul, and what he wrote about Jesus, which is incredibly thin. That's the earliest testimony that we have from anyone. Yeah, and what we have from Paul, like you said, it's incredibly thin uh, as far as knowing anything about the historical Jesus. And then what he does give um, is is different than what we have in the Gospels. If you read his account of the resurrection and the appearances, it's nothing like what we have in any of the other Gospels. Um, so, and also an important thing to realize, getting back to what you were talking about, about the internal evidence within Mark, um, Mark doesn't talk about any resurrection appearances to Peter. Now, if Peter is, if this is coming from his testimony, you'd think that would be an important thing to include, but, um, it's not there. And I don't want, um, people to throw rocks at me, uh, through their uh, iPhones as they listen to this, but I'm going to say it again. I've said it so far in each episode about this. Even if you grant this argument that yes, Mark was written by, uh, the, by someone that was hearing from Peter, he was getting the, he was getting this evidence directly from an eyewitness, Peter. We have eyewitnesses today for all kinds of things and nobody accepts them as true. Um, you know, no, nobody seriously thinks that people were, uh, well, some people do, but, um, I don't, that people were abducted by aliens or that they saw Bigfoot or, um, you could go on and on and on. It, it has a lot of implications, like we've mentioned to to Mormonism. And like, there's a, there's a lot more, every argument that Josh McDowell here is making, if you applied it to Mormonism, you would absolutely have to become a Mormon, um, because we have much better, uh, evidence of the eyewitness testimony coming out of Mormonism. So, you know, we can continue on with this, but, you know, I don't want to harp on that point, but I'm probably going to say it again because I think it underrides almost everything that Josh McDowell is saying here. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental argument is like, if this is eyewitness testimony, then it must be accurate. And I think we're saying there's two problems. One, it's not eyewitness testimony. And then two, even if it was, even if we were to concede that, it doesn't make it accurate. Exactly. Yeah, you uh, summed it up nicely. For example, in First um, John one three, in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle John says, "What our eyes have seen, what our ears have heard, what our hands have handled, we declare unto you about Jesus Christ." Let me just stop that real quick. <laughs> um, he's talking about First John now, and he just casually says, "This is what the Apostle John tells us." Well, the Apostle John that is mentioned in the Gospels, did not write First John. So, you know, he's already um, lost me uh, when he gets into that. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing operates on really like the level of assumption that most people have um, with apologetics, like that, you know, the, the books in our Bible were all written by the people that they claim to be written by or the names that are attached to them, that this all goes back to somehow reliable historical evidence. So he's starting with those conclusions and working his way back and just trying to tell people, like, look, there is historical evidence. Look, these people were eyewitnesses. But, like, his his actual evidence is not proving his his conclusions. And okay. he's not telling you the actual evidence. That's the problem, too. Like, that's really the ultimate thing is, like, he's raising questions, giving you bad answers, and even the answers he's giving don't prove the conclusions that he's drawing. So he just casually says that... Uh, as he's talking about First John, that um, 
the the Apostle John uh, wrote this book. And I'm just going to read from Wikipedia here. Um, you can do your own research and get more in depth with this if you want, but just according to Wikipedia, right? Uh, you know, very, you know, overview type information. Um, but it says on the authorship, most critical scholars conclude that John the Apostle wrote none of these works. And they're talking about um, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, and it, it goes on to talk about Raymond Brown. And, um, and then as far as the dating goes, um, let's see. The, the epistle was probably written Ephesus between 95 and 110 AD, which pretty much just rules out any possibility that um, the Apostle John, as described in uh, the Gospels, is the author of this piece. But again, uh, for some, the, my main point here is that Josh McDowell, his entire premise is that I went out and studied the evidence and this is what I find, and this is why you should believe it. But the evidence that's as clear as day from the people that are studying it disagree with almost every factoid that he gives here. And I just find it so um, dishonest. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point of John, but it's like, um, I think like the consensus view in um, scholarship is there was a community that was identified with the beloved disciple that we call the Johannian community. And out of that community, a lot of this literature was affirmed or came out of maybe, or came out of disciples of disciples of disciples of, um, of the beloved disciple, but not that it was the same author. And, um, and there are differences in theology between um, the Johannian epistles and um, the Gospel of John. It may reflect the view that the they all came from the same community, but no scholar holds that the same author wrote them. There's so many problems with that. And again, I would just go, I would tell people to read Raymond Brown because Raymond Brown, I think, was like the first person to really hypothesize the Johannian community. And then I would say too that there are people that even doubt the Johannian community even existed and that think that all of uh, the Johannian canon are forgeries. Um, Now that's an extreme minority. I I know of like, but there is one scholar that's like working on that um, at North Carolina, I believe to just make these assumptions about the, the reliability of these gospels is crazy. Yeah. Hugo Mendez was the uh, professor that Chapel Hill, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, who uh, published the article in the journal for the study of the New Testament, where he says basically the um, Johannian community never existed. So if people want to look at that too, like I said, it's an outlining outlining position. Um, but again, it just shows you that scholarship not only is doesn't agree with Josh McDowell, but is in almost full consensus in disagreement with Josh McDowell. And then in Second Peter 1.16, <laughs> Peter is talking to the Jewish audience. And he said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. You know, it's interesting today. Oh, man. Ben, help I me. I know. Help me. <laughs> I, was, so, I had myself on mute. I was laughing <laughs> out loud. <laughs> okay. Second Peter. If there's one book that uh, is of dubious authorship, there's many books in the New Testament that are of dubious authorship. <laughs> I know. It's like hard to choose. But if there's one book that you would have to say is pretty much in unison. I know some of the most Christian Orthodox uh, people around that have studied this stuff. Even they cannot tell you with a straight face that Second Peter was written by the Apostle Peter. It is the most obvious forgery in the entire Bible. 
And for him, again, Mr. I'm going to follow the evidence wherever it goes to just assume that Peter's writing this and we should take it seriously as evidence for this stuff. Um, again, it's it's not just dishonest. It's, I, I don't even know what to say about this. But. Yeah, I mean, the chronology doesn't even make any sense. We know Second Peter is late. We know it's a late book. So, um, and we know that First John is a late book. We can go into, if people are interested, I mean, we're going to do episodes on um, the various forgeries found in the New Testament and in the Old. But um, some just some bullet points as to why um, historians realize that the Apostle Peter did not write Second Peter. Well, first of all, um, it describes a world and a political situation that didn't come about till much later. Um, there's lots and lots of reasons if you're interested in that. There's a lot of information out there about this. Um, but again, why use this as evidence to people that are unsuspecting, that don't know any better, sitting in church pews or wherever they are, and this is what you're citing to get them to believe. And it's it's so disingenuous because... Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it would be more, if you want to like measure the witness of the Gospels, again, someone who is closer to firsthand knowledge claims to have like conversed with eyewitnesses, then you would go to the Apostle Paul and you would examine right. the seven letters that are pretty much universally accepted as being written by the Apostle Paul. You wouldn't go to Ephesians or Colossians because those are questionable. That would be like using some sort of a questionable source to prove a to, to prove your point that another source is reliable. Um, but he doesn't try to examine the differences that are clear between um, what the Apostle Paul says in the Gospels, um, because that would make create a problematic for what he's trying to prove. So instead he goes to later books where theology is already starting to be um, more clamped down. Um, and again, the, these books are like totally disingenuous. Like uh, what, I mean, if um, Second Peter is claiming to be Peter and is claiming to... Um, be writing down eyewitness testimony, and we know that's not true, that creates a huge problem. And and I think Calvin even re- rejected um, Peter's authorship of Second Peter, right? So it's not like uh, a liberal view. No. <laughs> if Calvin rejected it, I mean, I to me, this book is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He should call it uh, Bullshit to Persuade Dumb People. Because he's not providing evidence here. He's, he's just writing conjecture and uh, false historical claims that are not even uh, well-researched. Um, I was expecting more as I was going through this because um, this is falling flat. Yeah, verdict supported by propaganda. I mean, essentially, that's re- like I, I almost said it before. I mean, essentially, that's what this is. This is like things subtracted from their context, used to prove a point um, that would go against the view of even the people that you're citing as your sources. And it's, it's, it's ironic that the verse he quoted from second Peter is like, we did, we did not devise cleverly crafted <laughs> tales. And it's like, that's exactly what second Peter is. Yeah. It's like, it's like constructed to, to look like it's coming from the apostle Peter. Um, but let's move on. I mean, it's, it's a little, it's a little aside, but it's almost like at every sentence that he says, I want to stop it and, uh, and critique it because it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fair. It's a fair assumption that this is the bread and butter of his argument. This is what he's presenting publicly to, um, convince people. This is probably what he feels like is the strongest part of his case. And, yeah, we could stop at every sentence and say there's a bunch of problems with what he's saying, and I think that's telling for the way he's making his argument. People will say to me, and many of them are very sincere, 
They'll say, you know, back then they couldn't discern the difference between tales and truth. They couldn't discern the difference between fact and fiction. Well, let me tell you, I'll stand, I'll put any of them up against any professor today or any historian today. They knew the difference between truth and tales. They went out and died for it. I mean, so it's a quick point, but I just want to say, like, we're not necessarily saying that they couldn't decipher between truth and um fiction in the sense that he's saying uh, like that oh we heard this um like i don't think you have to belittle them as primitive people although like you know they they would have beliefs probably that we would consider primitive in some ways or at least like their cultural beliefs like would lend them to believe maybe in the supernatural um in a way that we wouldn't with our scientific i don't um, i don't think it's i don't think it's belittling them but yeah but at the same time you do have to take into account like what people believed at the time for instance they believed the earth was flat. Um, they didn't have the scientific method the way, the modern scientific method the way we have it. And they didn't even have the historical tools that that we now have. Um, so you're not belittling them, but at the same time, you have to take into account like the worldview that they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I just like think it's, uh, if you're going to understand it, yeah, it's important to understand the world that they came from to contextualize what they're saying. And then I also just think that it's like, if somebody told you eyewitness testimony, there's plenty of people today. Or somebody said, like, oh, I saw an alien. There's plenty of people today that would believe that also. So True. it doesn't make them, like, less primitive. Like, it's not like, oh, well, they weren't primitive. They can understand the difference between truth or lies. People believe lies all the time that they're told. That's just the nature of life. So it doesn't – they don't have to be stupid necessarily to believe the lies. It's just people believe things that are not true. That doesn't yeah. necessarily make those things true that they believe. Right, but let me give you a couple other examples that spring to mind as you're saying this, though. Um, For instance, if somebody was having an epileptic seizure in the first century, it would have been very common to assume this is demon possession, whereas somebody having the exact same symptoms now, they would be rushed to the hospital in some of having some kind of a seizure. And um, it's even if you read the historians of the time, like if you read Josephus, um, Josephus intermingles supernatural events um, throughout, and, and most historians did. It was just kind of assumed that that's the way the world worked. They were like the, the supernatural was a regular um, part of life. And, um, and now most of the, like I said, with demon possession and all these other things, they're explained through science. And um, so it, it was a different worldview, and it would have been less of a extraordinary claim um you know to talk about a miracle in those times because there's miracles uh interwoven into all the histories of the time period yeah and i also just think that their understanding of a miracle may be different than like the way that we're um projecting it back on them too like miracles may have had more of a magical component and i think you see that in the gospels so let's just use tom cruise as an example Examining the mental state of Tom Cruise doesn't prove one way or another whether Scientology is true. Like, I don't need science, I don't need Tom Cruise to be mentally disturbed in order for him to believe Scientology is true. It's just he believes it, and so now he believes a bunch of crazy stuff. If you want to examine religion from a psychological perspective, people may claim that all religion is a, more, a form of insanity, and that's a position that's from a different perspective. But I'm just saying, in comparing ancient beliefs and modern beliefs, I don't think it's an argument either way to say Tom Cruise is mentally sane or Tom Cruise is mentally insane to say whether Scientology is true or untrue. 
he can believe something and be sane that is totally wrong. And he can be insane and believe something and that doesn't make it wrong either. You know, there's plenty of people now who I respect and um, I think are very smart people that believe things that I'm just shocked that how could you possibly, someone that I respect that has this type of intelligence that would come to that conclusion. But that's, I guess, just the nature of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just the cognitive dissonance that goes on with belief that is like unrecognized. Even the cognitive dissonance that went around with the failed return of Christ. I mean, they all believed Christ was returning, but they were able to overcome that belief because they reconceptualized the way or the trauma that they felt when Jesus was crucified. It doesn't necessarily mean um, because they reconceptualized something in a cognitive dissonance that made them believe that Jesus raised from the dead, um, and they really believed it, doesn't mean that they're stupid people or that that belief was true. They knew the difference between truth and tales. They went out and died for it. And Peter starts out here and says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. They knew the difference between tales and truth, in fact, in fiction. But we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses. They wrote as eyewitnesses. And then in John uh, 20, verses 30 to 31, John says, many other things... Many other signs Jesus performed. Now, why did he do signs? He did signs to com convince people that he was from the Father, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And it says many other signs Jesus did that convinced people then that he was a Messiah. And John writes, they have not even been recorded. But then the next verse says, but these things have been written. In other words, these signs have been recorded that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in believing have eternal life. There's a, there's a lot to say there. Again, Second Peter, he's quoting Second Peter claiming to be an eyewitness. And we just went through, uh, Second Peter is a forgery, um, pretending to be Peter. So he was not an eyewitness. Um, and then he talks about um, the Gospel of John and what he left out there is that it said, if you were to uh, record all of the uh, the other miracles and signs that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough uh, books in the world to contain uh, all of those stories. So it's clearly um, an exaggeration I use by the author. But the other thing I want to say is when you talk about the signs, this is a little bit of an aside. Yeah, in the Gospel of John, this like the miracles that Jesus did, uh, the whole purpose of doing the miracle was to persuade you that uh, he is the Son of God. Um, the, the, the miracle was a sign of that. Whereas if you go back to the earliest gospel, Mark, it's the opposite. Jesus does a miracle and says, Shh, don't tell anybody that, um, that I did this. The whole messianic secret um, was a big part of the gospel of Mark, which completely contradicts what we see there in John. The other thing I would say is the signs and miracles that are recorded um, maybe if they happened, they were very persuasive to people that witnessed them. But for people who didn't witness them, that's reading it in a in a book that's 2,000 years old, um, it's no more convincing than any other miracle that's recorded in any other holy book or work of history, or as I've said over and over on the show, any uh, claim that people witnessing the supernatural now. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. Um, there's also scholarly speculation that the signs in John actually go back to an earlier signs document. 
right. um, that John uses a source. Um, so that's another fascinating. I mean, it's like he touches on these interesting parts and then doesn't explore them at all, which is sort of frustrating when you're thinking about the things from the perspective that we're coming from. Um, because there is interesting stuff here that the people in the church don't know, aren't taught. Um, so I want to keep uh, harping on that. Um, and then there was one other point that I wanted to make. Oh, and then again, you know, um, this is an example of if you buy into uh, Robin Face Walsh, Walsh's theory of sort of like the exaggeration that you would expect in literary, um, the the cultural elite that were passing around um, literary works that were trying to best the rest of them. Well, I, oh uh, man, I had so many sources that they wouldn't even fit in all the books in all the world when I'm accumulating my gospel. So again, it's like another claim of like, this is the real, this is the real gospel that you guys should be reading. That's so, a really good point. And, and it shows again, a sort of like, if you read the gospels against each other, well, John is saying his gospel that's very different than other ones is sort of the ones that contains the real signs of Jesus. So if you read John contra Mark, like John said, then you kind of start seeing the huge differences between the way John um, uh, uses the signs and the way Mark hides the signs. And um, it just ends up complicating things more. So I really wish that he would do would flush out what's in these passages that he's citing instead of just using them. Like this apologetic use... Um, is really frustrating if you want to read the Bible for all that's really there. Yeah, and I think that um, his whole point here is that we should have confidence that um, these books are coming from eyewitness testimony. But what do you do when the eyewitness, the quote-unquote eyewitnesses disagree with each other? Like we were talking about signs. Well, did Jesus do a miracle because he wanted everyone to see that he was the Son of God? Or did he want to hide that he was the Son of God like he did in, in the Gospel of Mark? And, um, you know, again, by, by using his own methodology here, you'd still run into a huge issue. Yeah, I mean, so... It, you know, talking about just the two proofs that he offered, if you have Luke that is saying that he examined all the Gospels, and then you have John later that's basically saying, like, I have all these sources, so many sources that they wouldn't even fit. So much testimony that if I wrote it down, I wouldn't have enough books and rooms in the world to contain it all. Um, so those are both sort of claims of, like, who's got the best testimony. Well, if you read Luke against John, they're totally different. John's whole chronology is different than all the synoptics. So um, who do you—who's got the premacy here? Who wrote the real story? They're both claiming that they wrote the real story. That creates problems internal to the Gospels themselves, even if you accept his claims that— um, like, like John said, if they're all eyewitness testimony, what do you do when the eyewitnesses don't agree? And they yeah, don't and agree it, in so many different places. And him and Lee Strobel and, and this other one that you mentioned, they love to use these courtroom analogies. Well, you could see a prosecutor or a defense attorney, they have a field day when you have witnesses that disagree with each other. They would say, these witnesses completely disagree with each other so you can throw out the whole case. I mean, you like again, the, if, you, if you use his own... A methodology here it all falls apart yeah on the one hand like first of all a court case is not um the way that historians prove something like they're not operating on the same level as a court case where the idea is to like eliminate doubt or raise doubt um 
that like that's not really the way that historians operate um they're trying to find the best estimation of what really happened by examining all the different factors yeah, in, his, in history it's all about probabilities but it, but again just assuming his own methodology here and taking the uh, courtroom analogy very seriously yeah, um, i mean i would say that like witnesses that contradict each other does that raise reasonable doubt yeah that raises reasonable doubt <laughs> so uh i'm not sure he's going to get very far with this um so now he goes on to more of these street interviews okay so the uh silent movie um text comes up on the screen again and it says can christianity be proved and then he's going to ask people on the street so a lot of the uh respondents um to that question of can christianity be proved basically said uh no they don't think it really can be proved and one person said well it depends who the judge and who the jury is etc not really bad answers uh, but anyway um I think Josh McDowell is going to go on here to talk really as proof in a in a courtroom type uh, way. This is where I get the phrase that I like to use. The evidence for Christianity is not exhaustive, but it's sufficient. And you say, what do you mean? Well, in verse 30, the Apostle John writes out, he said, it's not exhaustive. Many other signs Jesus did haven't even been recorded. So it's not exhaustive. But he said... These that have been recorded of what Christ did and said are that you might have life and have eternal life in him. So he said it is sufficient for an intelligent belief. So the evidence is not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. I think he's using this different than what the author of the Gospel of John is doing. The author of the Gospel of John is saying the miracles that Jesus did um, are evidence that you should believe. But what Josh McDowell is not talking about the miracles. He's talking about the the fact that it is eyewitness testimony, according to him, and the fact that we have so many copies of this going throughout history. And so I feel like it's a little bit of a bait and switch on this point. Yeah, it's weird. He's like, if they wrote down everything, we would have all these documents. So this must be true. Well, like we don't have all those documents. So what does that prove at all? It proves nothing. Um, yeah, it's uh, it. It's a strange. He he's making a real jump um, to something that he hasn't proved, and I think also it's a weird standard that's like shifting because now it's like, well, the evidence is sufficient for belief, so that's different than proving. I think this is a, a game that people play, and I think he gets into this more in the book, like with the cosmological argument and stuff like that. Or uh, Alvin Plantinga is famous for his uh, free will. Um, explanation for the problem of evil. It's like, well, if you, if it's possible, then my belief is, um, then I'm not like irrational for believing something. And I, I would say like, okay, but that doesn't mean that what you believe is true. Um, it just means that maybe you're not completely irrational in belief. And, and I think like John and I have talked about this before, like rationality is a weird like, if by rationality you mean, like, the method that we use to get to truth, then I think we agree. Uh, but if rationality is some, like, concept, this is what rationality is that exists in some terrestrial or, or super ter terrestrial plane um, of meaning, I think that um, 
That's the use that I don't agree with. So, I, I mean, I just think it's strange. His whole setup is strange. I don't think he's proven the point that he, he wants to prove. And I think proving that something is sufficient evidence for belief doesn't mean that you should believe. Right, but I think it's really important to say he he's kind of uh, arguing around in circles here. It's the same as if you say, God wrote the Bible. How do you know that? Because the Bible says God wrote the Bible. Yeah. Because he's saying the evidence is sufficient for you to believe. Well, how do you know that? Well, the, well, John says it here in uh, in the Gospel of John. Right. It's um, totally circular. It's it's like, well, wait, I thought you were going to provide me evidence that I should believe the Gospel of John. And and the evidence that I should believe the Gospel of John certainly can't be that the Gospel of John says it's good evidence, which is what he's doing here. Um, again, it, it, it makes me question um, the genuineness of his entire premise of the book, that he's like doing a kind of unbiased investigation. That doesn't sound like it. It sounds like he's just taking the Bible at its word. Um and just assuming it's true. Yeah, you hear this a lot, too, with apologists, where they use claims from the Bible that are clearly not talking about the Bible in order to justify the Bible's reliability. And it's it's very dishonest. Um, it, I mean, it's like, yeah, whatever John is talking about there, he's not talking about the reliability of the Bible that we have. Like when he quotes Second uh, Peter and says... Um, you know, we did not uh, follow cleverly devised tales, and we were eyewitnesses from the beginning. He's just saying, "See, they were eyewitnesses." Well, the yeah. very the very question is, were they eyewitnesses? <laughs> yeah. And he's just reading it and saying, "See, he's an eyewitness." He's saying he's and like so. If we're just going on uh, what someone is claiming, uh, like I said, I think like you would go down a pretty long road of like all the things that people claim. You're going to need something more than that. I'm sorry, but. Um, it's not sufficient for me that somebody claims something outrageous or extraordinary. Yeah, and I mean, he's claiming he's using an even more dubious source than the source he's trying to prove, to prove his source. And I think, like, the other thing that I wanted to say is, like, this would be, and maybe he does this in the book, so it's kind of unfair to criticize him for this talk, that he's not getting into, like, any type of, like, real nitty-gritty stuff, because his book is 800 pages long. But it would be interesting to examine the... Um, non-Christian witnesses for Christianity um, during that early period, um, what they were saying about Jesus, the other witnesses uh, to that were not Christian, and what they were saying about Christians and Jesus throughout um, the relatively early history, um, because those things are relevant too, if you're looking for historical perspective. Those so, things are biased as well, so you would have to take them with a grain of salt. If you have a person that's writing against Christians, then you, would have, you wouldn't say, I'm just going to accept their testimony as totally valid. They said that they spoke to eyewitnesses or something. Um, you would have to read through their biases as well, um, something that he doesn't do. He just treats these texts as if they're it's they don't have any biases they're totally objective sources and they're just they don't even claim to be objective sources they're writing in order to persuade you to believe in Jesus as the Christ yeah i think that's actually one of the best points that you've made if you are going to say eyewitness testimony um or you know is what is what we're going for and we're going to assume that the the gospels are eyewitness testimony well what about the testimony of celsus who said all of this was made up. What about the testimony of ancient Jews? Even in the Gospels, it says that the Jews were claiming that uh, the resurrection never happened, that they, were, that they moved the body. So 
you know, that they, uh, that the disciples came and secretly moved the body at night so to make it look like he rose from the dead. Like it says that in the time of the New Testament, Jews were saying that. So you would have to take their testimony, those Jews. What if we had a full gospel from them? What would they say? Well, we know that they disagreed with this. So again, like just saying like eyewitness testimony is important. Well, there was two sides. There was eyewitnesses on the other side, um, uh, or testimony of people saying that no, none of this stuff was true. And by his own uh, methodology, his courtroom analogy, you'd have to put there on the same exact plane of evidence uh, that you put those people on. Yeah, or we brought up the other early gospels. Um, you would have to look at them. You would have to like examine every claim that comes from someone that claims to be an eyewitness. So we have to believe that Polycarp gave his like super long soliloquy word for word before he was put to death. Um, and we have to believe people jump out of pots of boiling water. And we have to believe a lot of stuff uh, becomes part of the analysis if you use this methodology that we can say clearly is not historical. Um, and to pretend again that there was the Christian communities were not prone to exaggeration or creating literature that was ahistorical is just not an accurate scholarly view. It's not an accurate view um, for anybody when you look at the evidence. I mean, it's overwhelming the amount of, uh, you know, early Christian literature that's out there that's just all over the map with claims of the uh, supernatural, with claims of uh, authorship. And I mean, there's problems even internally. Like if John is um, an eyewitness, how does he get the testimony of Pontius Pilate in his interviews with Jesus? That's happening. No one's there to pass that testimony along. Yeah, the, like, there's a lot of examples. You know, of that. it creates internal problems too in the narrative. It's just not an accurate view. There are reasons for things that being in the text that are ahistorical that reveal different historical realities um, during the times that those texts were written. That's a much more interesting discussion than pretending they're a historically accurate text the way that Josh McDowell is doing, where you miss just like you not only like miss good history and good scholarship, but you also don't even get what the Gospels are saying themselves, because you start conflating everything together or um, saying John is making claims that John's not claiming. Yeah, I think actually, Ben, it's, it is really important to say what you just said. It's, it's one of the biggest arguments against this idea of, that the Gospels are eyewitness testimony. Uh, what literary uh, scholars have said for, for centuries now is the Gospels are written from an omniscient narrator standpoint. And you, you brought up a couple instances of this. And yeah, throughout the Gospels, there's all kinds of things that clearly no one would have been there to record, or they know the thoughts, they know what um, people were dreaming. Um, this is not something that you would expect. And it would be laughed out of a courtroom, by the way, to again, to use his analogy, if you brought it up. Um, if you had one eyewitness telling you what someone else's dream was about, or if you had one eyewitness describing an event that they weren't there for, um, it would be a big problem. But, but again, this is what Josh McDowell is not being very, uh, using a lot of scrutiny on his own arguments. He's just saying it so the people in the pews sit there and nod their head. And it's, it's frustrating for people like us who he's claiming to be writing to. You know, the, the book is talking about, I forgot it's in the title somewhere in the tagline, talking about like, this is for skeptics. Like, this is going to persuade skeptics. Well, we are skeptics and um, it's not even a little bit persuasive. Uh, I can see how it would be persuasive for somebody that doesn't um, want to analyze the evidence, maybe, that just reads it on the surface, puts it down and smiles and walks away. But if you really dig into this at all, um, it falls flat. 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of what we like to do on the show is build a little bit of biblical literacy. Like, hopefully people are going and doing their own. Um, this isn't supposed to, like, supplement a Bible study or even be a Bible study. But if you want to be spurred on to read the Bible in a way that, like, reflects the history of when it was actually written and, like, picks up on these nuances, I think that... Um, this is meant to kind of be like a commercial for that, but that's not the way that Josh McDowell is doing this. The other thing that I want to talk about for a second with you, John, is the giant elephant in the room when it comes to evidence. And that's the end of the Gospel of Mark. Um, because if you have eyewitness testimony in our earliest gospel, and that's what the resurrection is based on, the only eyewitnesses to the, re to the empty tomb in the Gospel of Mark are the women who come to the tomb. And the gospel says they didn't tell anyone. And it created such a problem that somewhere along in the early church, they added another ending to the gospel of Mark. Um, and you don't have to believe me. You can just go in your Bible and it will tell you right before you get to that ending of the gospel of Mark that this was not in the earliest and best documents. It's, an early, it's a later addition to the gospel. Um, I'm not going to go through um, why if that later edition is like based on a historical account it's not um but the important thing to remember is the eyewitness testimony according to our earliest gospel ends with the three women going to the tomb there's no like lineage of how that testimony goes anywhere those women are scared and they don't tell anyone so it's a big conundrum um i think for eyewitness accounts. There's obviously a tradition of these women being the ones that found the empty tomb, and I don't know that there's a reliable tradition um, otherwise. I just think that it's, um, it, it, like, without dealing with that issue of the evidence, the, um, the witnesses, the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, according to the first gospel, like, their eyewitness testimony not being passed along beyond themselves... Um, I just think it creates a lot of issues for it this creates, claim about eyewitness testimony. It creates a huge issue because if you understand, as we keep explaining on the show, the synoptic problem, that you know, historic people trying to um, get to the historical Jesus, they don't use Matthew and Luke, and the reason they don't use Matthew and Luke is because Matthew and Luke stems from uh, Mark, and um, so they use Mark, and. Um, Mark, like, like Ben said, doesn't have any, any details of the re resurrection or even any appearances of Jesus. Um, in fact, the resurrection is not even in Mark. The, the empty tomb is in Mark, so you can kind of infer it, but that's where it ends. Um, so what Josh McDowell is doing is he's saying, oh, well, Matthew and Luke are also independent eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Well, if that were true, that would be more meaningful, but it's not true, and there's virtually no scholars that think it is true. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, um, Mark is a forgotten gospel in a lot of ways, and people should go read Mark and remember that it's the earliest account, um, because Mark has a lot of really interesting stuff in it. Yeah, and and like you were like you were always saying, Ben, if you get a gospel synopsis where you where it lines up each gospel and columns next to each other, it really is one of like the most enlightening uh, thought experiment, experiments you can do while studying the Bible because you can see, okay, 
once you have in mind that Mark was the one that wrote first and the others are using it, you can see what they decided to change and leave out. And then it can give you an insight into like why they are changing it and why they are leaving it out. Um, and yeah, when you get to the resurrection, they clearly were not happy with the way, uh, with the way Mark ended it. And they said, no, we have to have appear- resurrection appearances. So they each, Matthew and Luke, write their own resurrection appearance. And you know what? That's the part where Matthew and Luke completely diverge from each other because they're, they're now, they don't have any source material to base it on. So they're each creating their own narrative in a very different way. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um the belief that Jesus was raised from the dead and that people appeared for him, like, seems to be a belief that early the early church held. Um, but, like, to say that that goes back to a reliable historical tradition is a jump. One that we have, let's, let's put it that way. Like, we just don't, like, he's making the claim that what we have shows a reliable historical tradition that goes back, that proves the, uh, <clears throat> the resurrection. And I would just say that that's not true. They wrote as eyewitnesses. And in Luke, when he starts out the book of Acts, in the first three verses, he said that Christ had appeared to the apostles with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. And that phrase, convincing proofs, was a phrase of that day of overwhelming evidence in a court of law. And so he says there, look, I'm not an eyewitness. But in examining the eyewitness, they recorded that they lived with Christ, they ate with him, everything, for 40 days after the resurrection. So he recorded an eyewitness account. Just, you know, it's hard not to, like, delve into Bible versus Bible when he's saying these things, because, yeah, in one account in in Acts, um, the resurrected Jesus stayed with them for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. But I think it's actually in Luke. Um, he like immediately, like there's no time for that, the way the story is told. He immediately, after he does these things, he immediately ascends into heaven. Um, so the timelines are, are all off. And also, again, how like I'm not really sure the point he's trying to make here. He's trying to say that ancient people claimed that there was many convincing proofs to them okay, why do I, why am I supposed to believe that? Like, like there's, again, like I'm saying the same thing every, on every point I'm making, but there's the convincing uh, claims, quote unquote, convincing claims all around the world every day that most people don't believe. Yeah. None of this proof, if you're a compare, if you're a student of comparative religions, you realize that none of these proofs are, none of these uh, truth claims are exclusive to Christianity. This is the kind of stuff that every religion claims um, that they have. Their book goes back to like real historical events, or I mean, you know, within a certain amount of reason. Um, and we have, like John has brought up a bunch of times, we have much more recent religions that claim the same thing um, that would be much easier to trace to reliable historical information. Um, so if this is the convincing proof that you have, you could go believe in those religions and be even more um, convinced. Um, but I also just wanted to say, like, Luke, no one thinks Luke is a reliable historian. Like, that's just not a scholarly view. He um, messes up history all the time. He, like, I mean, even Josh McDowell admits is not an eyewitness. So he's only just telling, allegedly, testimony that he's heard from other people. Um, 
was not present at the event. Like even the people that claim that Luke traveled with Paul um, rely on like a certain time when Paul changes the pronoun from I to we. And so Luke is not there for all of the journeys and yeah, like a, a confusing um, theoretical uh, conception that doesn't necessarily, but the problem is, and I think he's going to talk about Paul in a second, um, that Luke doesn't even agree with other um, writers when it comes to history and chronology of um, the early church. So we're not, we can't use Luke or Luke acts to prove the reliability of Luke just doesn't work that way. Yeah, and when we say Luke, by now I'm sure you all know we're using it in quotes. We don't know who the actual author was. And um but but the scholars do believe that um the Gospel of Luke and the the uh, and Acts were written by the same person most likely. And um so if we're using this author to say that this is the historian, this is the one we really need to put our weight into, well when you compare some of the things that um, Luke says, the the author of Acts says to the historian Josephus, what you find is Luke makes a much more um, hard to accept version of the story when he talks about the death of Herod and he talks about he was speaking to a crowd in a flashy coat and then, um, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but then he was like in front of the crowd immediately eaten by worms. Um, and then if you read Josephus' version of it, it does talk about him talking to a crowd in a flashy coat and then got some sort of a parasite and died over the next several uh, weeks or months. Now, which one is more believable to you? And, and again, this is what you know, people like Josh McDowell say, well, Luke is this historian that we really need to put all this weight into. And there's other problems. If you really want to like break down um, historicity of Luke Acts, um, there's people that have done that in like in great detail, and you can see there's there's a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. A lot of people think that Luke had Josephus and used Josephus as a source, but he also messes up some of Josephus's uh, um, <clears throat> claims. Uh, Luke doesn't even Luke can't even get the birth of Jesus consistent to a date within his own gospel. Um, I think the idea that Luke is drawing from a bunch of sources that are not necessarily consistent is probably uh, pretty good notion. And a lot of people think that Luke was late now, too. A lot of people think Luke's gospel might be contemporaneous with um, John's gospel, so even that late, like in the hundreds sometime. Um, and that's because of the way he um, deals with uh, Christ's return, and um, also because I think they think some of the sources that he used he wouldn't have had available um, earlier. So it's all more complicated than taking Luke Acts, the author of Luke Acts, as a reliable historian, which he doesn't even claim to be. Right. Yeah, I think um, all of this stuff is actually some of the most fascinating stuff in New Testament studies, like when you're looking at um, the synoptic problem and when these Gospels were written and the historicity in Luke Acts. Um, I actually, you brought up uh, um, Josephus, and uh, it's interesting whether Luke had Josephus, the author, quote-unquote Luke, and I actually emailed Bart Ehrman once, Ben. I don't know if I... To- I think I told you this. And I asked him that question if um, if he thought that uh, Luke had uh, Josephus. And he just wrote me back, no, I don't think Luke had Josephus. <laughs> so Because I thought I had found... I was reading and I was like, he definitely had Josephus because like I'm seeing these things like it's so... It was so similar. But... Um, I think uh, it Peter ends in his book... Um, 
argues that Luke is late, and I think that he thinks that Luke had Josephus. I mean, it's it's not like so. Part of like again, let me just put a little disclaimer. Like what we're doing here is not trying to get you to some sort of a truth about necessarily what the Bible says. What we're saying is that scholarship is not necessarily totally agreed on what the truth is, and it's much more ambiguous and complicated, but fascinating to start looking into this stuff. Like, I think the idea that there's just, like, one gospel truth, or even that it's like a... Like, we're not trying to question the spiritual truth, necessarily. The idea is to question, like, is, like, his claims that this is historical, historical. You know, part of what people try to, I think, malign us with is, like, we're trying to be prophets, or we're trying to lead people astray. No, I'm just saying read the book from a historical perspective, and you'll find a bunch of interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to say, uh, I'm I'm presenting the evidence as the as I see it and have studied and read about, and if you disagree with me, please present evidence, um, and we'll and we can have a good discussion about it. I I'm totally happy to change my mind, and I've done it a lot. You know, Ben has has presented things to me, and other people have presented things to me. Some Christians have presented things to me that make me change my mind on things, and I think that's the reasonable way to be. But like you said, I, Ben's getting into a little bit of like uh, Reddit and Twitter criticisms from Christians that are coming at us who don't really mess with our arguments at all. They don't cite our arguments. They just they just say like, oh, false prophets and um, deceivers and uh, and things that we get a, a good chuckle out of because. Um, we don't have any problem if, if people believe in Christianity. We have problem when pe- problems when people um, have bad reasoning and they use bad logic and they misinterpret evidence or they uh, believe lies um, just because it backs up what their fundamental point is. Yeah, and I don't want to like belabor this point because it is kind of an aside. Um, but it's like questioning the uh, reliability of the text or saying that there's an ambiguity to the canon or the scripture and that it's something that's a process to get to and a scholarly endeavor to understand is um, if that does threaten your theology, then you, maybe you need to re-examine your theology. Um, because your theology should be informed by like understanding what the text says. And if you've been understanding it wrong, then maybe that has implications for your theology. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but I think it's an interesting historical um, quest. Even if you have no interest in theology at all, um, I think it's still a really fascinating thing. And I think we want to like rescue the Bible from uh, fundamentalists who are missing out on a lot of this stuff. And and I think like the other thing that I just wanted to make clear is like there's a lot of questions in scholarship, like whether Luke had Josephus that are being hashed out in scholarship. Um, and it's not a question, but the way that people are coming to those conclusions are not by saying, I start with a theological answer and I have to make my theory conform to a theological answer. They're saying, I'm going to look at the evidence. I may have a different take on the evidence than Bart Ehrman, um, but we're both trying to look at the evidence to make sense. I'm not saying, well, my theology says this thing, and so let me filter the evidence through my theology in order to make the evidence fit my theology. I think that's a real problematic way of trying to do history. Yeah, and to your point, Ben, I think you would agree with me that the Bible became much more alive and fascinating uh, once you start studying from a critical standpoint. Um, you know, like having an ortho, a Reformed Orthodox view of the Bible 
where it's all speaking from one voice. Um, everything agrees with each other and things like the Westminster Confession of Faith have already like ironed it all out and figured out all the problems and there's nothing more to like really learn from it. I, I think that is one of the most stale, boring uh, ways to look at the Bible. And I think like opening it up and like trying to like really get to the bottom of it um, or really look at the actual history um, is, is truly one of the most fascinating and rewarding things that um, people can do. And I think that like it can it can also help your your faith in a way because there are there are problems in the text, and a lot of times the theological answers to those problems are really insufficient. And when you find how insufficient they are, um, it becomes a problem for your theology. Whereas if you can understand that sometimes the text reflects different sources, sometimes the text reflects contradictory views, sometimes the text reflects the author's theology more than a historical view. Sometimes the text um, is writing contra to another text that we have. If you can understand that ambiguity, um, then some of the sometimes the text is writing to the historical day that the text is being written in and, and creating a, a story in order to um, write against a heresy or to affirm Samaritans that are part of the community or to answer the disciples of the of John the Baptist who are now part of the Christian community but or to um, answer other false teachers in the church according to the author's theology. Um, it starts to resolve some of those problems because you understand this doesn't have to be this homogenous thing that agrees with itself. It's actually not that. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think with um, on specific theological issues and things that the church has been debated uh, over, have been debating over for uh, millennia, um, having a more uh, scholarly view, a more academic view of the Bible will help you because there's things that you can jettison. Um, there's things that, you know, you can say, I really don't like um, what Paul is saying here about women. I don't like that he's saying women have to stay silent and learn from their husbands at home, but they're saved through childbirth. And you know why? Because you realize that Paul didn't even write that. So it gives you a little bit more, having a little bit more academic approach can help you even as a Christian. And I think that's what like the liberal um, or more or progressive churches. Um, I think that's what they're doing. And um, I have a little bit more respect for that than I do for the fundamentalists who try to systematize the Bible into one singular teaching that is like obviously on the surface contradictory, um, but for some reason they don't always seem to notice it. Yeah, I would love to dive even deeper into the pastorals and all the reasons it's uh, a problem, but we should probably just continue. Yeah, I think, Ben, um, we've reached the end of this episode. Um, again, we ended the last one on kind of a rant, and we've done it again. But um, there's a lot more to this uh, you know, evidence that demands a verdict, and I really want to, uh, to uh, give the arguments um, our full attention because this is, uh, like we've said in previous episodes, this is like one of like the biggest um crutches that uh christian apologists use and pastors use to bolster their faith this is the evidence that they present to people regularly um and so we want to give it uh, as much attention as we can and break it down the way we're doing we'd love your input please continue to write into us and uh, tweet at us i think that probably wraps it up for today ben what do you think yeah, that sounds good. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing this. 
Um, I think John's right. Like this is then I think was the number six book by Christianity Today, like most influential Christian book of all time. Um, so it's obviously something that's out there in the ether that everyone is kind of absorbing. And I think that it's good to be able to push back on the arguments that are made in this book with real history. Absolutely. Good night, everyone. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Thank you.